Okay, so let's turn to part three of Bacon's New Atlantis. Here, in this section, we'll talk about the uh, very interesting uh, Feast of the Family. That's from pages 87 to 91. Uh, and then, after that, we'll look at the conversation with Joabin, um, where he describes um, the island further. So let's look at the... Let's start on page 87, then. Okay, so one of the first things that happens is that it's said that they all, that is the sailors, they all forgot what was dear to them at home on the basis of what they saw and experienced in Ben Salon. That's a striking thing. Um, I mean, what what would you think that they have in mind by saying the word dear, like everything? They forgot all that was dear to them. So that means families. That means their um, like hometown, their friends. Anything that was home that used to be dear is something that can be forgotten when they come to Bensalon. Um, so something striking, I suppose, to keep in mind. And the narrator seems to speak awfully highly of the city. He praises it specifically for its humanity and its freedom. Now, I want to think uh, just for a moment about the word humanity in particular. Um, that's a word um, that comes up in Machiavelli, um, in The Prince, um, when Machiavelli enumerates many of the virtues. Um, one of the ones that he says is humanity. That's not a virtue found in Aristotle. Um, and it seems to be, I don't know, some kind of word that seems to mean some kind of like concern for human beings as a collective, um, regardless of, I, guess, I suppose, like where they're from. That if you have humanity, it's just a concern for human beings as such. Um, and it may be the case that that, um, I guess, is like something as a virtue that perhaps was alien to classical political philosophy. Um, and so you can see that there's a kind of um, universalism to modern political philosophy. So it's it's certainly the case that Socrates and Aristotle, in thought or in philosophy, did want to search for something that was universally true about justice or about courage or about the virtues or about just the character of reality. They wanted to know something that might be true anywhere or everywhere. Um, in a way, we're on a quest for a vision of justice that might be true for any or all political communities. Um, but it doesn't seem, or at least as far as I can tell, you don't ever see Socrates or Aristotle saying anything along the lines of, well, the way of life of Athens should be spread everywhere in the whole world. Um, whereas I think once you get to modern political philosophy, that becomes more of um, the goal is to sort of create some sort of universal structure in which all human beings as such can kind of fit into. So you might say that something like Universal human rights is an idea that's consonant with modern political philosophy um, in a way that it doesn't seem to jive especially well with classical political philosophy. Just by way of situating this in um, a bigger context um, and to speak very broadly or generally about something really complicated. At any rate, then, let's turn to the Feast of the Family, this very strange um, custom that we hear about that evidently is fairly important um, and very, or at least somewhat rare. Okay, so the feast of the family occurs um, when a father sees 30 descendants of his who are all alive together at the same time. This is a remarkably uh, large number of children to have. Um, but at any rate, this is what is required in order to begin or to have a feast of the family. Um, now, one of the things that's done in the feast of the family is that there's a kind of special ceremony where the father meets with other um, brothers um, and other, uh, I guess, like different family units in order to 
dissolve or resolve disputes in an open way. So it's a kind of ceremony that's also designed to bring some sort of unity to a large family. That any kind of grievances or disputes that were brewing quietly or passively are brought out into the open and hopefully resolved in a satisfactory manner. Um, now, we talked a little bit about the classical household when we read Aristotle's Politics, um, and it seems to be the case that this, what we see in the family, Feast of the Family, is a kind of classical household on steroids in a way. Um, it's obviously very patriarchal um, and is sort of, I guess you could say that it's like a household oriented towards, or like a household that sees itself as one whole designed to sort of like allow one person to sort of, I guess, yeah, go out into the world and accomplish things and have a kind of a leisure that makes that kind of accomplishment possible. So they depend on, or the, like the father would obviously depend on some of his children and his wife in order to have the kind of leisure required to do certain things. Although Bacon doesn't really talk too much about leisure in this text. So it might be a kind of mistake to do too much equating of this kind of household with what Aristotle was talking about. Um, but it's something to think about. So the term for the father who is at the head of this feast of the family is the Terzon. The Terzon um, stands arrayed with his whole family in front of the city at a certain point as a kind of like showing off for just like, look at how many people are here um, um, and sort of like being honored at the same time. Um, they're also given money and distinction from the king. So sort of privileges attached to being um, a Terzon. Bacon doesn't enumerate those too much. It's hard to say exactly what they are. But that is to say, one who becomes a Terzon is kind of given a new and higher rank in the city. So there's a way in which this is not an egalitarian city um, at all. And you can see that already. We talked about this a little bit before. Um, the kind of clothes that people are wearing are surely designed. Bacon spends a lot of time describing clothing. Um, and it seems that's that the um, uh, people of Benson put a lot of stock in what their rank is and the hierarchy. Um, and the clothes are a way of demarcating that, that they think that hierarchy is an important element of uh, political life. Um, and another thing is, is that um, what the what the ceremony would say is that family is an incredibly important part of life. Um, you don't really see anything like that today in American life, like something that would elevate the family this much, like a kind of parade when somebody has a big family. Um, rather, you might see people um, rebuke them for having a big family. So um, I guess you could, and not that everybody would, but um, people kind of seem to be shocked, like when you run into a family of 10 kids, like uh, my uncle, as a matter of fact, happens to have 11 kids. Um, and people are just always astonished or astounded or just can't even wrap their heads around how that would be possible to live uh, to live with or to uh, do that kind of thing. Um, but so all this is to say is that like, um, I think this work is especially interesting to study just because it seems like Bacon frames a city that in a certain sense is very diametrically opposed um, to the American way of life. But on the other hand, to some extent, Bacon's project inspires the American way of life insofar as we do tend to praise innovation. We do tend to praise technological progress. Um, and even like the, the U.S. Constitution has like intellectual property rights in it um, as a way to promote invention and technology. So like our, our Constitution to some extent kind of um, owes a debt to Bacon. And Bacon's often um, considered part of the Enlightenment or something like that. 
But I guess it's um, interesting to note that there are sort of different flavors of the Enlightenment that call upon people. Okay, so that's the Feast of the Family. Um, yeah, I think, like I said before, I think it might be an especially interesting thing just to look at insofar as it just seems to be totally the opposite um, of our own way of life. So if we want to understand our own way of life better, it's good to see it in stark relief against the, the potential alternatives um, that others have suggested. So if we want to say that our way of life is better, we have to be able to show or point out like why we think that this account... Um, is bad or not helpful or not consonant with human nature or good politics or something like that. Um, okay, so let's turn then to the next section of this reading. Um, but I think it sort of yeah forms a nice part. Um, is the conversation with the Jewish man Joabin. Now you'll um, remember we read early in the semester Second Samuel. Um, there we saw a man named Joab, um, and he helped King David accomplish his nefarious erotic misdeeds with Bathsheba. And he's the one who sort of gave the order, or I suppose you could say carried out David's request to get Uriah killed. Um, so, yeah, so Joab in Second Samuel sort of, yeah, aids and abeds King David in doing, yeah, bad erotic things or things around sex um, that almost by any standards seem to us to be bad, um, whether biblical or non-biblical. Um, but I think it's important then to keep that story in mind because Joabin here in Bacon's story is going to tell us something weird or strange about the laws related to sex and marriage in Ben Salam. So uh, Bacon doesn't disappoint us with the similarity in name. Um, I think he sort of relies on our remembering that this happens in the Old Testament as a way to alert us to be prepared for questions about sexuality um, and eros right now. Okay, so we might also note that the very fact that there is a Jewish person, person in Ben Salam indicates that there's at least some level of religious toleration um, in Ben Salam, just as like a, a note in passing. Okay, so um, given that Joab um, has uh, something to do with David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel, it makes it all the more striking then that the narrator asks how love is handled in Ben Salam. Okay, let's look at page 93. If you have the first edition, this would be about 30 pages into the text. So when asked about, um, well, it's, oh, sorry. One thing to note is that the narrator sort of asks like, so you guys must be interested in population increase, right? Um, Jobin doesn't say anything about population increase. Uh, but you know, if like a nation is interested in increasing their power, um, having more human beings there, is like one way that you can potentially do that. Um, so it's something to keep in mind as we think about Jobin's response. Um, but let's look at page 93 to hear what Jobin says. Um, you, This is about a third of the way down the page. You shall understand that there is not under the heavens so chaste a nation as this of Ben Salam, nor so free from all pollution or foulness. It is the virgin of the world. 
Well, and then as we go farther down the page and move on to page 94, um, Jobin seems to say that European marriages are only made in order to avoid impropriety. That is to say, um, somebody gets pregnant and there's a shotgun wedding, or the marriages are just for usefulness, um, or just to avoid certain evils, but that there's nothing sort of intrinsically good about the mar about the marriages that are pursued in Europe. So it seems on one hand um, that he almost like praises the way that Ben Salam does things too much. Um, and he seems to praise the way that things are done in Ben Salam. Too, or sorry, on one hand, he praises Ben Salam almost in an exaggerated way. And then in return, he almost exaggerates um, as far as his account of the way that um, Europe looks to say that like, oh, yeah. No marriages are based on love. All of them are just based on usefulness. Is that really true? Um, yeah, sure. Maybe some like are based on um, some sort of utility or some sort of usefulness or something like that. But it seems there's a way in which Jobin exaggerates. And sometimes when you see a character um, in a work like this or a work by a sort of like great author, um, you, sh you should pay attention to the exaggerations and see if they um, end up covering up something or if they point to some kind of problem. You'll note as well that when the narrator first describes Jobin, he describes him as wise. So maybe this wise person who doesn't want to you know, be persecuted by his regime reveals something kind of quietly about troubles in the city by first exaggerating how good the city is and then starts to quietly point to some maybe problems or cracks in it. Um, so, yeah, so before he lets us in on maybe some of the weird stuff that's going on in Bensalem, um, he sort of tries to argue that in Bensalem, in order to have respect for oneself, one needs to remain chaste. Um, and seems to suggest that people in Bensalem see this institution as intrinsically good or sacred. So, whereas the Europeans see it as a mere instrument, the people at Bensalem allegedly see it as a kind of end in itself that's good to pursue no matter what. Um, even if it seems to come at costs um, or things like that. Um, so in a certain sense, he doesn't specifically or directly answer the question, the narrator's question about whether or not they're pursuing population boosts. Um, but in a way, he repudiates that suggestion by sort of saying, no, 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 the Bensalem might see this as a sacred thing. Then, though, we suddenly get this wild story about um, these so-called Adam and Eve pools. Um, so this is a kind of, I guess, inversion of a story that comes out of Plato's longest dialogue, The Laws, um, and out of Thomas More, St. Thomas More's Utopia. In both of those works, there's a kind of strange ceremony where a potential husband and a potential wife could see each other naked before they had to get married. There's no sex or anything like that. They just saw each other. And on the basis of what they saw, they could then continue to go forward with the marriage or they could cancel it right there. Now, the way that Jobin puts this is to say, well, um, wouldn't it be horrible to be rejected like that, to have somebody see you, then suddenly reject you, and just to go, to go on with your life knowing that that person had seen you like that and then rejected you, that it might be too painful. Now, instead of scrapping then this uh, Adam and Eve pools altogether, um, <laughs> Jobin says like, oh, no, no, we found a nice innovation to make the Adam and Eve pulls even better. And so instead of you seeing your potential future spouse naked and then choosing whether you want to be with them or not, 
you have one of your friends go see them and report back to you. What do you make of this? This is striking and strange. Um, it seems to me that Jobin might be pointing out that it's hard to legislate about sexual matters or it's hard to find the right balance because um, this doesn't seem to be good for a lot of reasons, um, but maybe just for reasons internal to the story, we might say um, something like, well, what's to stop a friend from reporting um, a mark um, or some sort of strange deformity or something like that um, that's not true? So like, let's just say your best friend is in love with somebody and they're going to uh, marry them. And you've had a crush on that same person um, for your entire life or, you know, for, for a large, long amount of time. Then you get the chance to see them naked. And then all of a sudden you're like, well, you know, maybe there's like some sort of just big flap of, you know, skin on their back that just um, almost looks like wings are sprouting out or some sort of bone. You know, you just make something weird up um, in a way to sort of like, mm, I guess, uh, yeah, to try to, to mm, I guess, yeah, step in and sabotage the relationship. I'm not saying that this is something that would happen all the time in Ben Sloan. I'm just trying to say that it doesn't seem to solve any problem. Um, and so by Bacon sort of presenting us with a kind of problematic um, social, a kind of problematic social arrangement, um, it might be, in a way, Bacon could be indicating that the way that a society morally looks at sex, um, that it might be kind of always a problem. That That is to say, um, it's like hard to do it the right way. So maybe... And now I'll just speak descriptively about the United States and not um, with an eye to making any value judgments about it. But you could say that um, at least as far as what was said about sex sort of near the beginning of the American project, you know, back in the like late 1700s and early 1800s, um, pretty much anything that would be said would be said in accordance with a kind of strict version um, of Christianity, or that's in a way what dominated the social mores. And then you sort of get to our day in which you can have um, television shows where um, I guess like casual or promiscuous sex is not even sort of allowed, but even respected or praised or something like that. That it's sort of like really common um, to see a very different, I guess, like sexual taste or a kind of different attitude towards sexual mores portrayed um, in contemporary television shows. Not all or anything like that. I'm just saying that you can see a big change um, in the way that sex is thought about in the United States. So, I mean, you could think about it this way. Um, on one hand, maybe if you look at something like uh, Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, um, it seems, yeah, it'd be kind of bad if you have, like, if somebody is sort of accused of adultery or premarital sex or something, and then they have to wear a scarlet letter on their <laughs> clothing for the rest of their life and be shunned by the political community. Um, like some people might say, that seems bad. Um on the other hand, um, it could be the case that in the contemporary United States, you know, it's like something like Tinder where you meet so many different people and suddenly find yourself with like all these emotional attachments to so many different um, people that you either either spend some time with or not very much time with. Um, well, you sort of earnestly maybe you're seeking a serious relationship and just not able to find it because of the massively different way um, that we look or think about sex and dating. Um, you can see that maybe there are... Um, I guess, like, disappointments and difficulties that come with both modes. And I'm not telling you to pick either of these modes. All I'm saying is that it seems like it's hard to strike the right balance um, when it comes to 
legislating for these kinds of things or for how a society ought to be oriented towards these kinds of things. And the fact that in a utopia, Bacon presents us with a sort of problematic social arrangement that um, seems not to make very much sense might be his sort of admission that even in a utopia, you're going to have a difficult time deciding how to do these kinds of things. Yeah, so that is to say, Bacon could be saying that um, sex or eros in the political community, in the way that a political community should approach it, is a kind of um, permanent perplexity or a permanent problem um, that doesn't admit of a very easy answer. Okay, so that ends uh, Jobin's speech, and next time we will talk about Solomon's house. So, uh, yeah, that'll next session will be our last one on New Atlantis.